Hey ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. One of my favorite conversations I've ever had on There Are No Girls on the Internet is with a writer who was targeted and harassed online about how she continues to stay safe while doing visible work on the Internet. Without missing a beat, she said, anybody worried about online harassment should sign up for Delete Me. I signed up for Delete Me right then and there, and I personally recommend it to anyone. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and use promo code nogirls at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and enter code nogirls at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash nogirls, code nogirls. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. There are no girls on the internet as a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is There Are No Girls on the Internet. Hey, everyone. I am back, and I wanted to share a few quick updates with you. I'm so excited to say that we're going to be back with new weekly episodes for our new season dropping in just a few weeks, and I cannot wait. But in the meantime, I just had to come back in your earbuds because I just finished that new Amazon Prime documentary, Lula Rich, and I am dying to talk about it. So for those of you who don't know, Lula Rich is a documentary all about LuLaRoe, the multi-level marketing scheme that sold leggings and big dreams of successful entrepreneurship to millions of millennial women across the country. But basically, it was too good to be true because it turned out to be a total scam. And truly, there is nothing I love more on this planet than a documentary about a scam. So later this week, we'll have a very special episode featuring Roberta Blevins, the former LuLaRoe mentor turned multi-level marketing awareness advocate featured heavily in the documentary. And hearing Roberta's story and all the other women's stories in the LuLaRoe documentary really got me thinking about the kinds of societal conditions for women that allowed for these women to get scammed by LuLaRoe. You know, we basically live in a world where if you're a working mom, there just is not a lot of support. It's a world of precarity and scarcity. But at the same time, we also live in a world that tells women that we need to do it all. We have to be hashtag girl bosses, you know, be successful entrepreneurs, raise our families, be good partners while also being expected to advertise how great of a job we're doing at doing all of that incompatible stuff on a picture-perfect, meticulously curated Instagram feed. It is way too much, and it creates the kind of conditions that can really lead to women being easy prey for scams like LuLaRoe. 
conditions like feeling like you have to be perfect all the time on social media or advertising or branding yourself all the time on social media, conditions like feeling like you have to do it all, and conditions that lead to burnout. So ahead of our episode this week, breaking down LuLaRoe and the documentary Lula Rich, I wanted to revisit my conversation with Anne Helen Peterson, author of Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And if you just can't get enough of Anne and I, you can check us both out at Unfinished Live, where I will be doing my very first ever live taping of There Are No Girls on the Internet. Unfinished Live is a convening of technologists, journalists, artists, and changemakers in person at The Shed in New York City and happening virtually on September 23rd and 24th. It's going to be two days of talks about how we can all use ethical tech to build a fairer economy and a stronger democracy alongside the leading minds shaping that future. I'll be there alongside other speakers like Anne Helen Peterson, Charlie Warzel of Galaxy Brain, Sophia Noble, author of Algorithms of Oppression, and Glitch CEO Anil Desh. Just go to live.unfinished.com and use promo code TANGODI for more information. This is going to be a little bit different of an episode than what we usually do. Because things aren't normal, and I don't feel normal, and you probably don't feel normal either. If you're anything like me, a combination of never-ending depressing news, IRL events and connections being replaced with more time sitting in front of a computer, and the overall creeping feeling of mounting instability has left you feeling drained, exhausted, distracted, unmotivated, and burnt out. In her viral BuzzFeed essay called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, Anne Helen Peterson writes, if exhaustion means going to the point where you can't go any further, burnout means reaching that point and pushing yourself to keep going, whether for days, weeks, or years. Burnout isn't just one thing, it's everything. For weeks, I've had a list of things to do that I just can't seem to get done. They roll over to the next week and I tell myself I'll do them then, but I don't. I've had a package in the corner of my room that I've meant to return for months. My personal email inbox is where correspondence goes to die. I let emails go unreplied, then feel awkward about how long it's been since I've replied, so they just go unanswered. While I'm working on this very episode, there's a chime. An email added to my seemingly unending inbox. A work Slack message knocks for attention in the background. A group text notification from friends wanting to confirm a Zoom party for this weekend. I'm already feeling out of sorts, so I check Instagram to see if anyone left a nice comment on a picture that I posted of myself, appearing to look very centered and chill, that was ultimately posted to make myself feel better about my life in the first place. And all of it ends up feeling like a lot of distractions. At night, instead of going to sleep, I doom scroll social media until I pass out, ready to wake up and start the whole thing over in the morning. Is this what my life was meant to be like? Everything, from work obligations to leisure activities, feeling like a task vying for my attention that I'll never get done. How did we get here? Anne Helen Peterson writes, burnout and the behaviors and weight that accompany it aren't in fact something we can cure by going on vacation. It's not limited to workers in acutely high stress environments and it's not a temporary affliction. It's the millennial condition. It's our base temperature. It's our background music. It's the way things are. It's our lives. And that realization recast my recent struggles. Why can't I get this mundane stuff done? Because I'm burnt out. Why am I burnt out? Because I've internalized the idea that I should be working all the time. Why have I internalized that idea? Because everything and everyone in my life reinforced it, explicitly and implicitly, since I was young. Her essay about millennials and burnout was so impactful, she turned it into a new book called Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. In it, she describes that familiar and exhausting feeling of what she calls errand paralysis. Being so overwhelmed that you're not able to get any of these tasks in life done, so you're left feeling perpetually stuck. But our generation was supposed to have it easier than our parents did. And technology was supposed to make our lives better and more fulfilled, not worse. So why are so many of us burnt out? What's going on? I am Anne Helen Peterson, and I write culture study for Substack. So one of the reasons why I was so excited to speak to you today is because I just really have not been like in a good place, I guess. I've been feeling stuck. I've had a hundred kind of work things to do online, emails to reply to, these kind of social obligations on Zoom that somehow leave me feeling like more drained than when I started. And mm -hmm. the main thing is like nothing was getting done. You know, I would write these to-do lists and it, like they would just carry over, you know, day <laughs> by day. 
And when I read your the excerpt of your book in Wired, which we'll put on the show notes, it really just struck me. You know, you start with this rundown of your digital diet and it was this very familiar and also exhausting mix of, <laughs> you know, little tasks where you feel like you're kind of never working, but at the same time, always working. And so I guess my question for you is, I know that when you first started writing your BuzzFeed piece that later became the book Can't Even, it was a kind of a way for you to grapple with your own, uh, you know, your own issues around burnout and feeling sort of burnt out all the time. What did that feel like for you? What did that look like for you? You know, a lot like what you just described. <laughs> I mean, we weren't in the pandemic, but like I, I felt like social interactions weren't nourishing. They just felt like another thing on my to-do list. And I felt like that to-do list was never ending. Like there were the things that just gave me so much shame because they kept recycling like one week after another that like onerous task that really isn't probably that hard, but like just felt like insurmountable. Um, but then also just like little things like the piddly stuff of life that just kept always being there. And I think, you know, for me, that is the best description of how burnout feels is that everything becomes like a task to complete instead of, you know, your life to live like the, the there's no highs and no lows. And that's why, you know, there are lots of intersections with like depression and burnout and that sort of thing. But I think that it burnout feels to me at least different in so much as it is so related to your attitude towards work. One of the attitudes about work that you dig into is this idea that our jobs have to be both fulfilling and also, quote, good jobs. You know, the kind of jobs that your parents would be excited to brag about you having. And you say that social media has really had a hand in building up these fantasy jobs that we should be striving to that are simultaneously both really cool and good jobs. Yeah, I think that younger people have internalized this idea that like jobs should be cool, right? In some capacity that uh, whatever your job is, whether it's a, a passionate job or a job that is like, you know, on the outside, you're like, oh, I'm just like making deals and like having cool drinks after work. I don't know, like people have, cool, it's hard to describe a cool job, you know, it when you see it. And the way that a job becomes cool is oftentimes through our mediation of it through social media, right? So that's like everything from taking pictures of your equally cool job mates, like in your cool office space to you know, even just like taking a picture that describes like how meaningful and rewarding and fulfilling your work is. We are always representing our jobs as I think far more fulfilling and, and cool than they actually are. God, that really resonates with me. Something that you, <laughs> that you write about in your piece that I didn't even, I did not even really notice I was doing it until I read your piece was the way that so not only do we have to have our jobs look cool on social media, but we also have to sort of be constantly using social media to brand ourselves in a kind of way. And so even if you are not working, what you're posting on social media, you know, if you're a journalist, you want to show you want to use Twitter to show that you're with it, that you're smart, that you're reading good things and that you're influencing others to read good things and have good takes. But that is actually work. And so it sort of creates this weird thing where your leisure time and your work time are kind of blended because you have to be branding yourself, even though that's not work that you're necessarily being paid for. It kind of, we've kind of just blurred these lines of what is and isn't work. And that we're always sort of working and it's fucking exhausting. <laughs> yes. Well, the way I think of it is that like work, uh, the contemporary like feeling of work, like it just seeps into every corner of your life. And when we don't have very good boundaries about like the space between work and non-work, that makes it easier for it to slip into like, oh, I just woke up in the morning. I'm going to roll over and open up my phone and check my email right now at 6 a.m., right? Or... I'm like feeding my kids and I'm just going to like casually scroll through my Slack messages. It just slips into all of those places. And of course, the pandemic has has made that slipperiness even you know more so. Yeah. How, how do you think the pandemic has really made this worse? I know I was reading a piece earlier that said that the time that we have saved by commuting by people who, you know, work at home now, we've just filled that with more work. We haven't filled that with leisure time or rest or something else. We've just used that time, however much that time that would have been that we would be commuting to an office. That's just more work time now. 
Yes, absolutely. Like everyone I know who <laughs> who has uh, recuperated a commute time by having to be at home, they they are not like using it to, oh, I'm just like having some quiet reading time or I'm meditating or I'm trying to be really present with my kids, you know, any of those things that like our best selves would want to devote that time to. Instead, we're just pushing more work into it. And this certainly happened to me when I moved to Montana in 2017. Um, you know, I was like, oh, I'm going to have so much more time to be outside. Beautiful Montana. Like, it's going to be amazing. I'm not going to be on the train all the time. Like, work from home, going to be great. And instead, I just worked more than I had worked in, in years. So being in beautiful Big Sky Montana didn't make you feel less burnt out? I mean, in some ways, right? Like I, for me, one of the the hard things, the like daily hard things about living in the city was that like just from the way that I grew up, I grew up in rural Idaho, like being out of the city and in outdoor spaces is like very nourishing and replenishing to me. And it was so hard to find that. Like, I mean, I love the parks in New York. They're great. I love parks just in general. Fantastic. They are not the same as like being in the middle of nowhere. And um, and it was just, you know, I didn't have a car. It was just so hard to to get into those spaces from New York. So I did have that like available, you know, to me in Montana on a daily basis and especially on the weekends. But at the same time, like I think <laughs> the pictures that I was taking on social media of like all of this beauty were a way of trying to tell myself a story of, of how much more balanced my life was, right? Like you're telling the world, but you're also telling yourself a story with your social media. When in truth, like I was just, um, I was just working all the time. I was traveling constantly for, for my job and also for like, go speak at colleges and that sort of thing. And, and oftentimes I think people who do travel a ton it's easy to frame that traveling as like glamorous life, right? Like here I am in the, in first class. And you're like, the only reason you're in first class is because you travel so much that you get upgraded. And like the only difference in first class is that like your legs don't hurt by the end of the flight. Um, but again, you tell yourself a story in order to like, not feel like crap about what the, the daily existence of your life is like. Let's take a quick break. Hey ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It is crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women, seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or your community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance. Fearless Finance provides on-demand comprehensive financial planning by the hour. It's a new way to get financial advice without all the headaches, high fees, and commitments that come with traditional financial advisors. Fearless Finance planners don't sell anything. No used car salesman vibe here. And that means no concerns about being sold something just for the commission that it earns a rep. Their planners meet you where you are on your financial journey. No judgment. Whether you're looking to buy a house, optimize your savings, or just want to make sure your finances are okay, they can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS. Y'all know I love the internet, but a sad truth about it is that it can be a scary place, especially for women, people of color, and trans folks. We've talked to people on this podcast, whistleblowers, activists, and advocates who are making technology safer, who then become targets for doing that work. 
But the truth is, it can happen to any of us online. That's why I personally use and recommend Delete Me. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and makes sure it stays off. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and use promo code nogirls at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and enter code nogirls at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash nogirls code nogirls. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. And we're back. So yeah, you say um, part of the problem is that these digital technologies from cell phones to Apple watches, from Instagram to Slack, encourage our worst habits. They stymie our best laid plans for self-preservation. They ransack our free time. They make it increasingly impossible to do things that actually ground us. They turn our run in the woods into an opportunity for self uh, self-optimization. They are the neediest and most selfish entity in every interaction I have with others. They compel us to frame experiences as we are experiencing them with future captions and to conceive of travel as worthwhile only when documented for public consumption. And my God, that really, (laughs) I mean, it's true. Sometimes I feel like I cannot have an experience if it is not filtered through social media and that this sounds really fucked up, but that at times it's almost as if if it's not on social media, did it even really happen? Like if I have a lovely experience in the woods or a lovely experience while camping or hiking and I'm the only person who knows that it happened, did it even really happen? Yeah, absolutely, right? (laughs) And of course it happened because what actually matters is how it made you feel. But I think we've gotten so distanced from that. Like the only way to know how it made us feel is how we're able to present it. And if you're like, oh, I didn't get any good photos of that, you know, that's such a, like, it doesn't matter, right? What actually matters is the time that you spent with other people, the time you spent by yourself in like a beautiful space, but somehow um, for it to, to seem important, to seem like it was worth our time not working, we have to make, frame it in a certain way for public consumption. Right. And another thing that you write about that I, I really like is the way that we've kind of our hobbies now need to be framed through that kind of framework. Like you write about how, you know, when you started gardening as a hobby, if you could, if you couldn't make your garden look nice enough, quote unquote, nice enough for social media, it's a little, it feels like you didn't really do it. And, you know, I'm a podcaster. I mostly do it because that's a medium that I love, but I feel this pressure to sort of, you know, be using the podcast to, or using the medium to sort of like pitch myself as a product instead of just like exploring a medium that I love. And I feel like we've gotten to a place where even the things that we're meant to be doing for leisure are kind of viewed through this lens of either A, having them be some sort of side hustle because you can't just, you know, do something to do it. It has to be a business entity. Or B, that that we're we're doing it only to be consumed by others on social media. And it really, it, it kind of robs us of this opportunity for actual reflective leisure time. Yeah, totally. For I think for reflective leisure time, which, you know, I oftentimes there's like different kinds of leisure and everyone has to know what is nourishing for them. And some of us like we've forgotten, right? Like we've spent so much time mediating it that you're like, what do I actually like? Right. Like if you if you're only doing it for yourself, what what do you want to do? And that's that's hard to recover, I think. Um and then it also, it robs you of, 
you know, reflection just in terms of like change, you know, I've thought a lot about some of the frustration that people have about what to post about Black Lives Matter, right? Like, do I like, okay, so the black, the black square is wrong, but what should I post? Is this being too much? Is this not being enough? Like, if, if I'm a black person, do people look to me to like, figure out what I'm posting? And are they like, weirded out if I'm not posting? There's just so much compulsion instead of people actually trying to figure out what would it actually look like to be an ally, right? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned this. I felt so much, I don't want to say anxiety. I felt so much something. Let's just use the word tension, even though that doesn't even feel like the right word. In the moment that we had around Black Lives Matter and racial reckoning, A, with people asking me like, oh, I posted this. Do you think it's right? And then B, the feeling of being sort of like, like looked to for, you know, a model of what people should or shouldn't be posting. I felt so much sort of tension and anxiety around that, that opening opening Instagram or opening my social media, just it, it added this, you know, for an already fraught moment for me as a black woman, it added this, le- this extra yep. level of just tension and, and anxiety that I really couldn't navigate to the point where I was just like, I'm not going to engage with this online. Like I will, I will use the platforms that I feel comfortable using, but I can't, I can't, this is, I can't show up like this online. It's just too draining. Yes. Yes. Like you're trying to deal with like what's actually happening in the world. And then you have to drain, deal with like the secondary annoyances. Like even if you're not intending to like sign on and be annoyed, like there's just things that people are going to be doing that are like going to be, like you said, tension, like it's going to create this tension that you don't actually need. Did you feel like not signing? Did you feel like you were missing something or did it feel good? That's a great question. It felt good only when I told myself that I wasn't going to care what people thought on social media. Like I I knew what I was doing. Like I, in my day job, I, I work for a feminist organization that was very much involved in, you know, a lot of the movement mm-hmm. for Black Lives stuff. So I know I know that I was like doing the work there. I know that I was showing up at protests and like helping where I could. Um, I also going out physically in protest for protests was a little bit tough for me because I'm immunocompromised. And so that was mm-hmm. the whole thing. And so once I told myself, you know, I know in my real life where I stand and what I'm doing. And if anybody thinks anything good or bad about what I have or have not posted on social media, that is their problem. Right. Reminding myself of that constantly and constantly and constantly, like that was the only way that I could show up in a way that felt not shitty. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, right? Like you were figuring it out like you were actually figuring it out for yourself instead of figuring it out like vis-a-vis your reactions to other people's social media accounts, right? Like that to me is is really difficult for a lot of people to arrive at. They're so out of practice at like authentically figuring out their stance and how they want to position themselves. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. And I think like, like you said, right now, because of the pandemic and because of the difficulty that some people have who would want to show up in person for, for a march or a demonstration or something like, and then they just physically cannot, um, that a lot of those messages get mixed. And so you feel a compulsion, like I need to somehow signal that I want to be there. And so how do you signal it without overly signaling it? (laughs) So, I mean, I think like being especially like people who are how do I put this um I think spending some time with yourself to actually figure out you know do how do I perform in a way that actually expresses my allyhood instead of or like my devotion to this cause instead of thinking about how do I signal my devotion to this cause does that make sense definitely yeah it's funny I mean you you put that so well. I was just I was just reading the part of your essay that's about Slack and how so much of Slack is like signaling that we are working and not actually doing the work. So it's like, oh, yeah. I'm thumbs upping my coworker's comment or I'm dropping in a link. Social media has and all of these different technologies have given us ways to signal that we care about the cause or signal that we're paying attention and checked in without actually yeah. be like doing the thing. Yep, exactly. <laughs> well, and that's, it just, if you take up all this time signaling instead of actually doing like that, it evacuates 
they're like it, it evacuates your actions of any sort of intent or power, I think. And so whether that's slack, like you don't have time to work because you're so busy trying to show that you're working on Slack. I cannot tell you how great it is not to be on Slack. Like, obviously I miss like chatting with my coworkers, but when I left BuzzFeed in August, like suddenly there wasn't that thing that made me feel like, oh, I guess I should, like, I haven't said anything for like half an hour. I guess I should like say something. It's just compulsory. And that is, I think, what's oftentimes frustrating. Is that like, oh yes, I was working. I didn't need to do a thumbs up, like you said. <laughs> yeah. And I think as as like creative professionals, it can be so fraught because, you know, nobody just sits down in front of their computer and like a, a perfect draft just spills out of you in the, <laughs> you know, in 20 minutes or something. But I do feel like the time that you spend thinking and sitting in front of your computer and like ideating or whatever, that's all part of it. But it can feel kind of fraught. It gives me this like anxiety where it's like, oh, I have to like overperform to show that I worked, that the, I was actually working then and not just goofing right. off. And it, it is kind of a, a part of me like telling myself that I'm not goofing off, even though somewhere deep down yeah. I know it. It's like this constant thing that's such a added distraction from just getting my fucking work done. <laughs> well, and I think we oftentimes told ourselves stories about work has to look like a certain sort of thing. Right. Like instead of work can also look like staring into space. Work can look like taking a walk. Work can work like not working. Um, and that has been really hard to especially those of us who work in creative fields. That's really hard to understand because to us, work is you are sitting in front of the computer and you are doing something on that computer screen. And it doesn't have to be that way. So I want to talk a little bit about how did we get to this place? You know, when I read your piece, it, it, it really resonated with me. And I think the fact that your, your BuzzFeed piece went mega viral shows that we're not alone in having these tasks that pile up, feeling this, this errand paralysis where you can't get anything done. How did we, how did millennials get to this place where we're all so burnt out? Well, I think the way that I try to position it in the book is so much of it has to do with instability, with precarity. And so that's what bonds people who are, you know, working three different gig jobs right now and people who are ostensibly middle class but are super over indebted, both in terms of student debt and consumer debt and still really struggling to figure out, like, how am I going to cover rent next month or how am I going to find childcare next month? And the difference, of course, is that middle class people can oftentimes throw money at a problem and do have some some sort of a safety net, either in terms of family bonds, like they can, you know, you could always move back into that basement and not everyone has that. But still, what we're trying to do is keep treading water. And so the energy required to keep treading water, oftentimes that means like feeling like you have to work all the time. That means taking your leisure time and optimizing it or monetizing it in some way. And that also means throwing a lot of time at parenting because you're trying to reproduce your own semblance of stability for the next generation. Yeah, it's funny. I, I know that you've written about the ways that parenting has a lot to do with millennial burnout. And something mm -hmm. I found so interesting is how this cuts across race and class lines. It just looks differently for different people, depending on their background and situations. I know for me, you know, I, we grew up pretty comfortably, but my mom was the first person in her family to go to college. We grew up in a black Southern family. And for them, they were like, you know, we want our kids to not, you know, quote unquote, become statistics. Mm -hmm. And the way to get the way to achieve that is through college and a stable job. And so yeah. the same way that upper middle class white parent who is interested in their kid going to an Ivy League college, it's sort of the same, even though the cultural and racial, you know, reasonings for getting there are different. It's sort of the same thing where this parenting then sets kids up for this idea that like the most important thing is getting a stable job, going to college, that pathway. And it really can lead to kids being raised almost as little adults. Yeah, totally. And a lot of that is motivated. And, and I try to do this a bit in the book. It's, it is, as you said, like it's motivated by not wanting your kids to take a step back from where you've gone, right? And our parents' generation 
uh, you know, a lot of them had reached that that middle class stability, some semblance of that middle class stability, sometimes for the first time in their family's history. And sometimes that was through going to college and getting a job after that. And sometimes it was through like getting a good union job um, and and having stability that way. And so the the goal is, okay, well, I don't want my kids to fall back from where I've come. And so you try to imprint all of these strategies for success and stability. And, and, you know, sometimes too, and this, I found this in my interviews, like sometimes people's parents didn't give a shit, right? Like they were like, <laughs> whatever, you'll figure it out. But the kids themselves really picked up through osmosis, you know, from their ki- their peers, from their peers' parents, from their teachers, that that was the only way, that they had to turn themselves into a walking resume, even if their parents didn't care. Yeah, I definitely feel that this is in, like reinforced both explicitly and implicitly. Like we're just told that this is how you're meant to live life. Like you're meant to... You're meant, your job is meant to be the, your everything. Your identity should be this job and you should be working 24-7. When you're not working, you should be feeling guilty about not working or, <laughs> you know, turn whatever, you know, if, you, if you're a bake, if you like enjoy cooking on the weekends, that should be a business or an Instagram page or something that you can never just not be, you should never be not optimized for working or something that looks like working. Yeah. And well, and think about that, though, like, what was it, you know, my, uh, like, my mom would make bread on the weekends, but she wasn't like, oh, I need to try to like, hustle on the side to like, make a couple extra dollars. And what it was is that like, they were able to, you know, pay off my dad's student loans, like they were able to buy a house in North Idaho, like they weren't struggling constantly to cover the costs of raising a family. Whereas because of incredible increases in the cost of living, the cost of childcare, the cost of healthcare, so many families that have like dual income streams are still struggling and are like, okay, I got to make an extra $50 every weekend by making bread. Yeah. That's something that I think you do a nice job of illustrating is how in our generation, millennials and older millennials Like a lot of us graduated into the Great Recession, you know, the dot com burst, now the instability of COVID. I feel like so many of us, we have never had the luxury of making choices about our life based on security. Like every choice, every professional choice I've made has been based on scarcity. It's been based on my back is against the wall. Some calamity is happening that's completely out of my control. And I have to make my professional choices based on this scarcity. And we have no idea sort of what it looks like to be making a life at a time of stability. I don't even really, I can't even no. really, like grasp that. No, you're it's so true. And I think like, especially people who work in more creative fields, like there is this expectation too, that like the company you work for is going to fold. <laughs> like, you know, you're not going to have any sort of stable job. It's like you can't expect a job to endure in the way that a lot of our parents like, started one job and stayed at that job for many decades or like my grandfather who worked at one company his entire life right um and i think that that overarching precarity so much of it you know it comes from entering into the economy as adults during the first great recession and then also just like expecting the other shoe to drop like most millennials i know are not surprised by the pandemic. They're like, we're just waiting for everything to collapse. (laughs) And to me, that shows a a psychology that is conditioned towards precarity, right? Is conditioned towards never feeling like you have a stability. And what that does, I think over the course of, you know, many millions of people over the course of a generation, and I think it's going to affect Gen Z as well, is it, it makes it hard to, to be confident, to experiment, to take risks. You know, like when people talk about, what having a universal basic income does, or even having uh, health insurance that's not tied to employment is what it does is it allows you to make decisions that make life easier for you, right? That make it so that you can find a job that doesn't feel shitty and exploitative. Um, It allows you to go back to school if you want to. You know, there are all sorts of things that having even just that modicum of stability permits for people. And we are so deeply unfamiliar with that. So how do we get to a place where instability is not the internalized norm for an entire generation? 
I mean, <laughs> create a lot more social safety nets. So the big thing that's changed between our parents and grandparents' generation and now is that so many of those social safety nets have been eroded. And I'm talking about like, uh, you know, pretty basic things like the fact that we have uh, legislators have just largely defunded so much funding for public education. And so like, because you have so much student debt, that makes it harder to, you know, if you lose a job, you're like, well, going to default on these loans, right? Uh, but then also just thinking about things like um, funding for it, some funding that has never existed, but funding for things like universal pre-K or even before pre-K, uh, mandatory paternity leave, universal health care, like things that are not uh, alien to most developed countries across the, the world. Like these are things that actually make life feel like you're not conditioned to precarity. But I think that we are so obsessed with this myth of the individual and somehow if the individual can work harder, then you'll get out of precarity. But this is why millennials are having these sort of existential crises, certainly myself included, is you get to this point of your late 30s, right? Like the oldest millennials are 39 and 40. And you're like, wait, I thought by this point, I would have found some stability. <laughs> and you, you're like, wait a second, like, I have kids, or I have been, on, you know, been in the workforce for almost 20 years, like, where's that stability? Why isn't it here yet? And <laughs> becoming deeply disillusioned and saying like, well, this is just broken. We need to fix this entirely. Oh my gosh. It's like, I, I go back and watch these movies that I loved in the nineties when I, when I watched them when I was young and all of the main characters, they'd be like 25 and having some like fantastic job or like having a lot of existential dread by the fact that they're not, you know, that they're turning 28 and they don't have their life together. <laughs> and here I am in my like mid thirties thinking like, like, Oh, we thought we were going to have oh. stable jobs, stable partners, <laughs> own houses by the time we were like 25. Like that, like that was the, the framework we were working with. What is the one, isn't it like my best friend's wedding? She's in, where... They're like 20, they're like in their twenties. <laughs> yes. Oh, so funny. So funny. Oh goodness. More after a quick break. Hey ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It is crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us, Black women, seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or your community, your health is invaluable. Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. So in 2024, one of my goals is to finally get serious about my finances. It's been kind of a big emotional thing for me. Thinking about money historically has caused me a lot of anxiety and stress because I have a lot of trauma related to money. And if you can relate, if that sounds like you, check out Fearless Finance. Fearless Finance provides on-demand, comprehensive financial planning by the hour. It's a new way to get financial advice without all the headaches, high fees, and commitments that come with traditional financial advisors. Fearless Finance planners don't sell anything. No used car salesman vibe here. And that means no concerns about being sold something just for the commission that it earns a rep. Their planners meet you where you are on your financial journey. No judgment, whether you're looking to buy a house, optimize your savings, or just want to make sure your finances are okay. They can answer your questions and help you achieve your goals. No question is too small. No problem is too big. Fearless Finance is making financial advice more affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge by the hour. Visit fearlessfinance.com today to get started. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit. And you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use code GIRLS. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year 
Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Let's get right back to it. The millennial generation is one of the first generations where it's not a given that we'll have things better than our parents had it. And yet there was this attitude where millennials were all lazy or entitled little brats who were all whiners. How do we combat those attitudes? Well, I do think that the messaging has kind of shifted. And part of that is, of course, that millennials are now like at the helm at a lot of different publications. But just the idea that like millennials have kind of been screwed is becoming more uh, popular, I think. But then at the same time, I think a lot of it has to do or the, the way that we can change minds about this is actually having conversations with people who are, you know, our relatives who are our are, are peer, like people who are older than us that we can actually feel like we can have a, a real conversation with about like, here's, tell me about what it was like when you had worked your way through college, which is always the common refrain, right? Which is like, I don't know why you took out all the student debt. I managed to work my way through college. And you're like, okay, so how much did you make a semester? How many hours did you work? And then you're like, and here's how many hours someone would have to work in order to work their way through a state college today, right? And those things don't add up, but sometimes you need to sit someone down and be like, here's how things have substantively changed. And like you can do it without turning it into like a math lecture, but you can be like, here's how the cost of living hasn't changed. Right. Like or like the our raises haven't um, been accompanied by changes in, for cost of living or even inflation, that sort of thing. But, you know, one of the things that I tried to do a little bit was create a little bit of empathy by being like, you know, Boomers were burnt out in some capacity, too, because they had grown up in this time of unprecedented economic stability. And then as they entered the job market in the 1970s, they experienced those first waves of precarity and were responding to them. And so, like, if anything, you know, part of the reason boomers and millennials have such a a difficult relationship is because I think we are pretty similar in a lot of foundational ways. I think that's a good point. I think coming, com- having it come down to empathy and having real conversations about what things looked like, because I don't know, I think about folks who are, you know, the generation below, you know, after me, and I want them to know we had a hard time. I don't want them to feel as if I want them to know that if they are struggling to figure it out, that we also struggled to figure it out. I don't right. want them to feel like they're alone or that they're a whiner or that they're, you know, they're make their, they have some sort of individual failing if they can't figure it out. Because I do think every generation has, has their issues with that. Totally. Well, and I'm seeing, you know, two different kind of discourses come out of Gen Z. And one of them is like, you guys were sold a false bill of goods. We are going to reject that bill of goods. Right. That's like, we actually think you can like, have a different sort of life, that college maybe isn't the most important thing in the world, that we can do something about climate change, that, you know, everything isn't intractable. So, and I'm always heartened by it, by that posture. But then I also see some, some like stuff that's like, oh my gosh, why are millennials such whiners, right? Like (laughs) they just need to work harder. And I'm like, don't you dare. (laughs) Um, So I, I think hopefully by creating not just empathy, but actual solidarity, right? Being like, it doesn't have to be this way for us. It doesn't have to be this way for you either. How can we work together to change it? 
You make this point a lot in your work that I love, that sometimes when we feel like we don't have a lot of power, leaning into the collective, whether it's joining a union, which I know more and more young people are supportive of, or just sharing honest experiences with each other can really be the antidote to some of the problems that you lay out, you know, the collective. You know, feeling like you're part of a united collective can really make you feel a lot more powerful and less alone. Totally. And it doesn't fix everything, but it does make you feel like, I mean, this is the word, right? It makes you feel a little less alone. Like it makes you feel like you're not just fighting this problem on your own. So much of the writing and content that I see around burnout, particularly geared toward women, will always have some sort of individual little thing that like, oh, this is going to be the the silver bullet or the magic bullet that that helps you figure it out. So whether it's using your meditation app or, you know, doing your self-care manicure (laughs) or, you know, quit your nine to five and be your own girl boss. And I am my own boss. And I can tell you that my boss sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Working for her is not great all the time, you know, and I think, you know, it's it's not these individual choices or actions that are going to save us from something that is systemic, that is right. that is bigger than us. And, you know, I think the real issue is capitalism, you know. Yep. And I guess my question is, how, A, how do we get to a place where we unlearn that it's an indiv- like we are doing something wrong individually if we are feeling burnt out? And B, how can we go forward knowing that the real issue is so much bigger than us? You know, it's funny. So there was a critique of the book that was like, this book doesn't talk enough about therapy, right? And I get it because I do think that a lot of the neuroses that millennials have developed, a lot of them are things that like we need to work through on the personal level um, through therapy if possible, even though therapy is not accessible to so many people. Um, But I also think that like, We've been taught oftentimes that like, oh, if you have a problem with this workplace scenario, that's a personal problem. Instead of thinking about like, oh, well, everyone I work with has this problem with this workplace. So maybe it's a workplace problem, (laughs) right? Like, or all of these people feel the same way in society right now. Instead of that being a personal problem, it's a societal problem. It's not something that you can just work through on your own. And also, almost every millennial I know who burnt out, who is burnt out, is either going to therapy or has been going to therapy, right? Like, it's not like therapy uh, is going to solve those larger issues as well. And so what we have to think about is what are these systems that are that are making everything so sucky, right? Like what are, what are the systems that, that make the scenario that leads us to burnout? And I'm heartened actually by even just like the, the willingness for us to say things like capitalism allowed. Like even 10 years ago, it was kind of like a like third rail, like, oh, are you a socialist? Like, oh, are you part of the Occupy movement to like talk about capitalism as this problem? Whereas now like, I mean, and part of it, I think, is the success of memes and even just like all over TikTok and Twitter, like you see a very clear indictment of capitalism as the source of a lot of our ills. And I think that like, you know, regardless of my personal politics, which are like much more radical than anything that I can see us implementing in the United States in our lifetime, I do think that there are ways to make capitalism work for the worker. And that that is possible and that there are plans, there are policy suggestions that can make that possible. And we can do it. The the big first step is regime change. So even though it's hokey to say, like, we have to vote, like we have to regime change and then we have to make some big changes and be willing to you know make ourselves amenable to those changes, not just incremental ones, but things that might feel scary um, because they're going to reorganize our lives. And I think for the better. So I have to ask, you know, in your in the excerpts that I read, you talked about feeling so burnt out and how writing that BuzzFeed piece was a, in, a, in, a, in a way trying to kind of come to terms with that. How is that? How has that looked like for your personal journey? Are you still feeling that way or <laughs> where are you at? Like, give me give me a check in. Uh, well, I'm, I'm pretty burnt out in the moment, I think, because I'm trying to gra- like wrestle starting like this newsletter that I'm doing is basically like becoming my own shitty boss, like you said, uh, but then also uh, letting getting this book out into the world, which requires a lot of talking about the book, which I find incredibly gratifying, but it also is time. Right. Um, and, and then trying to think to the future about other big projects, like whether that's books or whatever, 
And it was all really uh, amplified for me a couple weeks ago when the smoke got so bad out here in the West. And I realized that like the one release valve that I had cultivated over the course of you know, just general work stress, but also like COVID and quarantine stress was being able to go outside. And when that was taken away from me for a week, I was just like, I, I have nothing. Like I'm collapsing under the weight of, of this, this uh, house of cards that I've built for myself. And I think that drove home to me, like just how fragile things were. Like I've, the balance was in my life of trying to, to keep work and, and some sort of release. Uh, at the same time. But I mean, the thing for myself, like, no, of course, I'm not cured of burnout. But what I can do is I can recognize burnout behaviors more easily. I can try to like see them for what they are and just kind of not judge them, but be like, okay, how can I maybe shift a couple of things just quietly in my life to, to try to change that. Um, and, you know, talking about it definitely makes it feel better. I agree. I have to tell you, your, your writing on burnout made me feel you know, we talked about the collective and feeling less alone, just knowing that I'm not the only person who feels such incredible shame around my atrocious inbox or my inability to just like get simple shit done or yeah. the package that's been in the back of my car for six months. Just knowing that it's not just me really yeah. gave me the power to just start thinking about it and talking about it honestly. Like, like I've, I really yep. do feel like you opened up that space for so many people, myself included, to do that. So I'm, I'm so grateful for your work. Yeah, I think it was something that a lot of us were ashamed of for a long time. It's like we, there was this idea that you had to somehow be like, doing all the shit, right? Like that you had to like keeping it all, be keeping it all together at all times. And, uh, you know, even the people who are like, oh, I'm so authentic on Instagram or whatever, like that is such a performance of like <laughs> messiness. Like it's not actual messiness uh, or vulnerability. And so I just hope that we can continue to have this conversation in all of the different directions it takes us and also continue to be really pissed off about it because I want to use that anger uh, and use it to like push us towards change. Nothing we're dealing with right now is normal. So if you're feeling burnt out or like you can't get anything done or you can't find any motivation, that's okay. None of us are operating under normal circumstances and you shouldn't expect yourself to perform like we are. How have you been dealing with burnout? Hit us up at hello at tingodi.com and let us know. If you're interested in issues like culture and tech and media, and you probably are if you're listening to this podcast, don't miss Unfinished Live. You can hear Anne Helen Peterson in conversation with Charlie Warzel on the future of work, Sophia Noble, author of Algorithms of Oppression on Equity in Tech, Casey Newton on the Creator Academy, and Neil Dash with a rallying cry for a free digital future, all at Unfinished Live on September 23rd and 24th, happening live at The Shed in New York. And for those of you who can't attend in person, don't worry, we got you. The talks on live podcasts, including our very first ever live Tangodi taping, will be available to stream virtually as well. It's a great opportunity to learn about how we can all use ethical tech to build a fairer economy and a stronger democracy, alongside the leading minds shaping that future. The in-person experience includes two days of talks by leading thinkers, live podcast recordings like my own, an interactive audio experiment, clubhouse conversations, an immersive art installation, networking opportunities, and more. Just go to live.unfinished.com and use promo code TANGOTI. That's T-A-N-G-O-T-I, and I cannot wait to see y'all there. Got a story about an interesting thing in tech or just want to say hi? You can reach us at hello at tangoti.com. You can also find transcripts for today's episode at tangoti.com. There Are No Girls on the Internet was created by me, Bridget Todd. It's a production of iHeartRadio and Unboss Creative. Jonathan Strickland is our executive producer. Tari Harrison is our producer and sound engineer. Michael Amato is our contributing producer. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. If you want to help us grow, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd here. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. 
Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. It's every Thursday, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.